Welcome, dear listeners, to another tale of murder, scandal, and crime from Mississauga's darker side. Today's case is a crime of love and money, an inside job and a romantic rendezvous. Did the bridegroom bandit get away with the bank? For richer or for poorer, these fugitive newlyweds were on the run. Will the honeymoon heisters take a one-way trip to Kingston, Jamaica? Or Kingston, Penn? From the case files of Heritage Mississauga, this is Mississauga Confidential. Saturday, December 9th, 1905, Village of Port Credit. In this world, there are riches that are bought with love and riches that are bought with money. Evelyn St. George Banwell wanted both. He woke early on Saturday morning, dressed for work, and sat down to breakfast with his mother and youngest sister, Marjorie. The Banwells had moved to Port Credit from Toronto three years earlier, and as hard as Evelyn and his brother Selwyn tried to keep their standard of living high, it wasn't the life they'd known in Toronto before a bad investment wiped out their mother's fortune. The move to Port Credit did have the silveriest of linings, though, and that was Nora Hector. Back in Toronto, Evelyn would never have orbited her star. "'Don't wait up tonight for me, Mother,' said Evelyn as he gathered his work bag and gulped down the last bit of breakfast. "'He's taking Nora out again,' Marjorie snickered into her half-eaten piece of toast. Evelyn shot his sister a razor-sharp look. "'That's right.' We have tickets to a show tonight. Which theater? his mother asked. The, um, the princess, he said. His mother sighed wistfully. Your father and I saw Il Trovatore there just before he died. What's playing there tonight? Something about Christmas, I think, he said. The gingerbread house. The gingerbread man, Marjorie exclaimed. Oh, they say it's a lovely show. The music and the costumes, and Kris Kringle shows up. Won't you take me, please? No, he said shortly. Anyway, I'd best be off or I'll miss my train. Goodbye, mother. He leaned over and kissed her on the cheek. Stepping outside the door, Evelyn bid a silent farewell to the humble house in Port Credit. He said goodbye to working Saturdays at the bank, to being passed over for promotion, to pinching and scraping, to making ends meet, to eighteen months in counting engagements, and to indefinite wedding dates. If their plans worked out as they'd hoped, he would never see any of those things again. Not someday soon, not next week, not even tomorrow. Today would be his and Nora's wedding day. At the Hector farmhouse in Arendale, Nora packed a small bag and left it by the door as she put on her winter coat and hat. She too had told her family that she was going to spend the day shopping in Toronto and would attend the theatre with Evelyn in the evening. She grabbed her bag, exited the house, and took a big giddy gulp of the crisp outside air. She was a bride-to-be, and it made everything sweeter. Nora was a familiar visitor to the Crown Bank of Canada's King Street headquarters in Toronto. 
As she entered, she nodded and smiled at some of the familiar Saturday tellers. She went straight for the payment window, where the tall, blonde, blue-eyed teller was counting out a withdrawal for a customer. As she watched her Evelyn work, she smiled with pride at how good he was at his job, and the poise and confidence that made a young man of twenty-three seem older. But mostly, she smiled at the secret that only the two of them kept. The customer went away, and she stepped up to Evelyn's teller window. They gazed into each other's eyes, and to each of them it was a silent vow. Instinctively, the other employees looked away, giving the couple as much privacy as they could in the middle of a bustling bank. As they chatted about their family's health and the early winter weather, Evelyn made the economical, almost imperceptible motion of reaching his hand down to grab an envelope and passing it across the teller window to her. In a single fluid motion, Nora received the envelope and stuffed it into her waiting bag. They said their goodbyes and gave each other a knowing smile as they parted, promising to meet again at lunch. Nora left the bank and headed to the jewelry stores on Young Street. She had some shopping to do, and now she had the money to do it. Back at the bank, the clock struck noon. It was closing time. Evelyn shuttered his teller window. As the rest of the bank workers busied themselves with their end-of-day duties, Evelyn peeled off twenty signed fifty-dollar banknotes with nimble, practiced fingers and slid them into an envelope with the name and address of his brother Selwyn written on it. Along with the one thousand dollars in cash was a note asking his brother to give the money to their mother. Evelyn then stuffed his pockets with as much contents of his cash box as they'd hold, from American currency to gold to negotiable banknotes from the Crown Bank and other Canadian chartered banks. Evelyn even grabbed stacks of unsigned, non-negotiable $50 banknotes. The banknotes were worthless without the signed signature of Geo Grady, the bank's general manager, but the missing banknotes would send the whole operation into turmoil. Evelyn luxuriated in the thought of Old Man O'Grady turning away angry customers, telling them helplessly that there just weren't enough banknotes to meet their demand. They'd see what the Crown Bank was like without Evelyn St. George Banwell. They'd know they'd made a mistake when they told him to make good on a $100 discrepancy on his accounts, a mistake that hadn't even been his fault. $100 was two whole months' wages, and he'd never be able to marry Nora with that debt hanging over him. With that thought dancing inside his head, Evelyn grabbed his hat and coat, said goodbye to his colleagues, and coolly exited the bank. He fed his brother's letter into a nearby post box, then went next door to McConkie's restaurant, where Nora was waiting for him at a table in the Palm Court. They ate lunch together, then went to shop at the Diamond Hall, the Riri Brothers' brand-new five-story jewelry box on Young Street. Their last stop was John Wanless and Son Jewelers, where Nora bought a $625 ring. As they strolled down Young Street towards the three domed towers of Old Union Station, Nora's handbag jingled and jangled with $3,000 worth of diamonds and jewelry. At the ticket office, Evelyn purchased two one-way tickets on the 5.20 p.m. train to Buffalo, New York. 
There was no turning back now. Once they'd shuffled off to Buffalo, Evelyn and Nora didn't waste time living the high life. Instead of renting a secluded safe house, they strutted arm-in-arm arm into the stately Iroquois Hotel, where the elite of the Queen City came to meet and eat. They rented a room under an assumed name, then went across the street to a jeweler, where they purchased two $50 wedding rings. After seeking out the nearest preacher, they stood hand-in-hand in, hand in front of Reverend R. V. Hunter, and Nora Hector became Mrs. Evelyn Banwell. Evelyn knew no one would suspect they'd fleece the bank and skip town until at least Tuesday when he didn't show up for work and his cash box was checked. They'd have to run tomorrow. Tonight, however, was their first night as a married couple, and there weren't fugitives yet. They were young, in love, and flush with cash. On this night, in the dining room of the Iroquois Hotel, the champagne flowed. Back in Arendelle, after a frantic two days of trying to trace his missing daughter, Nora's father, Thomas Wilson Hector, received a telephone call from an unknown man. Don't worry about Nora and Evelyn, the voice told them cryptically. They're married now. Then the man hung up. Tuesday morning, right when the bank opened its doors, Hector was waiting to speak with the bank manager. O'Grady listened to Hector's melodrama of a runaway daughter with mild amusement. But when Evelyn Banwell didn't arrive for work, the panicked bank manager immediately ordered the young man's cash box checked against his ledger. Gone were $20,000 in unsigned banknotes. More distressing for the bank was another $20,000 in gold, signed banknotes, and Canadian and American currency that Banwell had absconded with. That kind of scratch in their pockets would take the Banwells anywhere but the moon. From Buffalo, the Banwells made their way along the Empire Corridor and arrived in New York City on Monday. Later that week, Evelyn secured an exchange of negotiable banknotes for $1,000 in American cash. He left the broker with half of it and went out and bought a new outfit for Nora, including a new handbag to carry the remaining stolen cash and diamonds. Before he was able to go back to the broker for the other 500, they saw a headline about themselves in the New York papers. Suddenly, the town was too darn hot. They picked up stakes again and kept running, due south. Hot on the couple's heels was an army of detectives from the Pinkerton National Detective Agency, hired by the American Banking Association. Pinkerton was the largest and most renowned private security and detective agency in the United States. Their slogan, We Never Sleep, was emblazoned on their logo, underneath a wide, glaring eye which led to the term Private Eye to describe their brand of sleuthing work. The Continental Ops were confident that they'd be able to catch up with a couple of doe-eyed kids from Canada in no time flat. With the newspapers reporting every sighting of the fugitive couple, public opinion swiftly rallied behind them. To some, they were greedy, no-account thieves. To others, though, they were modern folk heroes who'd struck a blow for the little guy against the big bad banks. No matter which side you fell on, though, the Banwells made for a ripping yarn. The pair's flight from justice was a frothy mixture of dime-store romance novel and boy's own adventure. Their exploits were given equal real estate on the front page and in the society column. 
From their easy chairs, readers cheered them on, hoping they dodged the American dicks all the way to their happily ever after. For a while, the well-wishers got their wish. The Banwell zigged when the bloodhound zagged. They hopped to St. Louis, skipped to Memphis, and jumped to New Orleans, with the detectives always a step behind them. At the southern tip of Florida, they said adios to the continental United States, and toasted the new year in Cuba. Soon afterwards, they landed in Kingston, Jamaica. The Manuel's next move was to hop a steamer to South America, beyond the reach of Canadian extradition agreements, the Toronto Police, the Pinkerton National Detective Agency, and the American Banking Association. Freedom was just one last sprint away. They had their passage booked. All they had to do was wait for their ship to sail. The Pinkertons had operatives in every major city sniffing around for the Banwells. Their trail had gone cold in New Orleans when frantic telegrams from Toronto police to arrest the couple were ignored by the New Orleans chief of police. Toronto cops realized they needed their own man on the ground to pick up the Banwell scent. Detective Black got the call and hopped a train for the Big Easy. Along for the ride was Geo Grady Jr., the son of the Crown Bank's general manager, who could identify Banwell on site. In New York, the two were joined by a Pinkerton detective named Duham. Once in New Orleans, they were able to pick up the Banwell's trail from a witness who remembered Nora's stylish new handbag, and that trail led them to Kingston. When Black, Duham, and O'Grady arrived in the Jamaican capital, they were met at the wharf by a Jamaican detective who escorted them to their hotel. As their vehicle moved through the sun-soaked streets of Kingston, O'Grady spotted a tall, fair man walking by, a man he immediately recognized from the floor of the Crown Bank of Canada in Toronto. It was Evelyn Banwell, and on his arm was Nor Banwell. The junior O'Grady was about to leap out of the cab to confront the couple, but Duham held him back. He suggested they tail them instead. They followed the Banwells to a hotel in the neighborhood of Constant Spring, where the couple was lodging under the aliases Mr. and Mrs. J. Handel. Outside the hotel, Duham walked up to Banwell and tapped him on the shoulder. How are you, Banwell? the detective asked. Evelyn turned to look at the detective. I don't know you, he replied. Duham turned to Nora. And how is Miss Hector? I mean, Mrs. Banwell. Evelyn tried to bluff some more, but Nora knew the game was up. All right, she said finally. Come up to our room. In their hotel room, the detectives found the handbag filled with the stolen banknotes, currency, and diamonds totaling more than $40,000 minus the $1,535.33 the couple had spent on the run. They also found two loaded revolvers. The Banwell's flight from the law was over, but their honeymoon in Jamaica continued on for another month, while they waited for their extradition to be approved by the Jamaican courts. It was a bit of bad luck for the Banwells to have been nabbed in Jamaica, a British colony which made their extradition back to Canada a cinch. On January 27th, a Jamaican magistrate approved their extradition, 
and a scenic 10-day cruise up the Atlantic coast from Jamaica to Halifax was added to their itinerary. When the West India steamer Boston docked in Halifax on February 27th, the couple were a bit the worse for wear. The angry February waters along the Atlantic coast tossed the ship around like a toy boat in a bathtub, and Nora was laid up with seasickness the whole voyage. Back on terra firma, the Banwells were in good spirits, laughing and joking with each other, as any newlywed couple would on their honeymoon. A throng of curious Haligonians turned out to meet the steamer at the dock. They watched as the notorious Banwells were ushered off the Boston and into a nearby customs office, where Banwell made the declaration of $3,000 in diamonds. From there, the couple were escorted into an awaiting carriage that ferried them to the last leg of their journey, a train trip back to Toronto to face the music. The Banwells arrived at Toronto's Dawn Station on the morning of March 1st and were immediately driven by cab to Toronto Police Headquarters on Court Street. Their families were waiting there for them. Evelyn was met by his brother, and Nora's father and sister were there to meet her. Now, Nora Banwell was no shrinking violet. Detective Blackwood observed admiringly that Nora was a wide-awake, modern girl, thoroughly able to take care of herself, and with ideas and a will of her own. And yet, when she was reunited with her sobbing father, the steely Nora broke down and cried in his arms. The reunions were cut short, and the Banwells were whisked off to Toronto Police Court, where they were arraigned by Magistrate Dennison. There was an immediate buzz in the courtroom when their names were called. The onlookers were anticipating a quick guilty plea from Evelyn, and there was an audible gasp of surprise when he entered a plea of not guilty to the charge of theft. Even the police and Crown Attorney were taken aback. Evelyn would test the couple's popularity with the public in a jury trial. By the time the trial began later that month, however, Evelyn had changed his tune and copped a guilty plea before the trial began. If Evelyn had hoped that presiding Judge Winchester would be lenient with him, he was sorely mistaken. Instead, in his sentencing, Winchester set out to make an example of Evelyn Banwell to all the young men of Canada, and he gave Evelyn four years in prison. Evelyn Banwell's next trip was to Kingston, this time Kingston, Ontario, to spend his sentence in the penitentiary there. The judge saved his compassion for Nora Banwell, who also pleaded guilty on the charge of receiving stolen property, and he gave her a suspended sentence. She was released back into the custody of her parents. When he got out of pen, Evelyn St. George Banwell may not have possessed all the earth and its gold, but he was still richer than a king, for Nora was there on the outside waiting for him. Though their criminal adventures were behind them, in front of them was the biggest adventure of all, married life. The daily adventures of getting out of bed, dressing for work, eating breakfast, going to work, and making ends meet were met because Nora and Evelyn met them together, straight on down the line. They added more adventures to their lives with the births of five children, Catherine, Sheila, Richard, Margaret, and John. Eventually, the Banwells even got their happy ending in the sun when they moved their family to Southern California in 1927. Evelyn and Nora 
are still side by side in Olivewood Cemetery in the city of Riverside. And so we close the file on another tale of murder, scandal, and crime from Mississauga's darker side. Like what you heard? Click follow to subscribe. This podcast is written by Brian Ho and Nicole Mayer. Research by Brian Ho, Nicole Mayer, and Matthew Wilkinson. An adaptation of this story by William Higgins first appeared in the Herald by the Arendale Village Association and was reprinted in the Heritage News. Video content produced by Brian Ho, Nicole Mayer, and Ryan Parks. Mississauga Confidential is a Heritage Mississauga production. Heritage Mississauga is a not-for-profit organization dedicated to researching, recording, and celebrating the history of the city of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. Your support helps create programming just like this. For more information about Heritage Mississauga and to become a member, please visit heritagemississauga.ca and follow us on social media. Until next time, dear listener, this is Mississauga Confidential, signing off.